0: stumbled on a really interesting website the other day uh, which listed off what it reckoned were the most common misunderstandings, misconceptions from the Bible. In other words, the most common things which lots of people think are in the Bible, but when you actually read the Bible, these are things that turn out not to be in there at all. And so in no particular order, let me give you three examples of common misconceptions that it listed. Misconception number one that the forbidden fruit which Adam and Eve ate in the Garden of Eden, most people think of it as being an apple. When you actually read the Bible, it was fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I guess is a bit of a mouthful, excuse the pun. Uh, And so most people just go with it being an apple when it wasn't. Second misconception, that there are three wise men who visited baby Jesus. Not so. The Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. The number three only comes from the number of presents that they gave Jesus. So there could have been two generous wise men or 30 stingy wise men. (laughs) doesn't actually say. Third misconception. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute when, in fact, she's barely mentioned in the Bible at all. And the only thing that's really said about her is that before she became a follower of Jesus, she was possessed by demons. So there you go, three common misconceptions from the Bible. Forbidden fruit, wise men, Mary was a prostitute. Hardly earth-shattering, are they? I mean, I guess from poor old Mary, uh, she'd be happy to have that one cleared up. But in all honesty, there's not a lot hanging off that sort of stuff. Whereas... I want to suggest to you this morning that there is actually another misconception about the Bible, one that was not even listed in this website, but this misunderstanding I reckon lots and lots and lots of people have, and this one is huge in terms of its repercussions even for us today. It is the misconception that Christianity is all about getting into heaven by doing good things. Don't you reckon a lot of people think like that, that Christianity is all about coming to church? Christianity is all about keeping the Ten Commandments. Christianity is all about doing the right thing so that the good things you do will outweigh the bad things you've done and God will give you the thumbs up and so it is that you'll get into heaven. Go down the street, ask Joe Average, and I reckon that is what a lot of people would say Christianity is all about. Maybe some of you here this morning think that that's what Christianity is all about. Maybe that's why you're here at church, storing up brownie points with God. Massive misconception. Dangerous misconception. It's not what the Bible says at all. And you can see that in today's passage from Romans. In fact, it's all very neatly summarised into a single sentence there in the middle of today's reading. If you look at where the passage is printed in the bulletin, it's the sentence that is underlined. Have a look at it with me. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now... I realise that that's a bit of a meaty-sounding sentence and it's got a few religious-sounding jargony type of words in it, hasn't it? Yeah. Justified, maybe even grace, redemption. No, it's, it's actually not a bad sentence. We've just got to take it one phrase at a time and it's worth taking it one phrase at a time because this sentence is a beauty for correcting that misunderstanding about how we get into heaven and let's face it, Getting into heaven is something that we want to get straight. So let's take it from the top, phrase at a time. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, a Gentile, remember, is simply a non-Jew. So Jew plus Gentile, well, that's basically everyone. And so there is no difference between everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that phrase is a bit of a summary of what we've been reading the past two weeks in Romans. As the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, he spent a lot of time explaining that no one, without exception, not one of us, deserves eternal life. And I suspect he spent a lot of time explaining this because it's a hard truth for us to come to terms with. We don't like the idea that we're not good enough for God, but the truth of the matter is we're not. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God See a couple of weeks ago Tuesday church went 10 pin bowling together I have the score sheets here to prove it And looking at these score sheets I can tell you that on the day I scored 116 I've done better I've done a lot worse But on this particular day I got 116 Which meant I beat quite a number of people I won't embarrass them by reading out their names, but on the day I was better than a few. But there were others who beat me. They were better than me. So I was better than some. Some were better than me. Here's the thing. None of us even came close to bowling the perfect game. All of us fell short of that. And that's the sort of thing that God is saying here about how good we are. That sure, you might be able to think of some people that you reckon are worse than you, just as there are people out there that are probably better than you. But the bottom line is, we all fall short of God's standard. None of us come anywhere near the perfect life. Which if you think about it, it's already starting to do a demolition job on that idea of getting into heaven by doing good things. Because even this first phrase is telling us that none of us can do enough good things for that to even be possible. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at what the next bit says. And all are justified freely by his grace. Now the word justified there, that's a legal word. It's a word from the law courts, and it means to be pardoned. It doesn't really mean to be declared innocent. It means to be declared treated as innocent, even though you are guilty. Which means that this sentence has taken on a very surprising twist. Because we've just been told that we're all guilty for all of sin, and then suddenly we're pardoned? Imagine the scene. You're, you're standing before the judge. All the evidence is in. You have been, every bit of evidence has shown that you are so guilty. You do not have a leg to stand on. So the judge's hammer comes down. You're waiting for the guilty verdict. You're waiting for the punishment to be handed down. And instead, the hammer comes down and the judge declares justified. Pardoned. And you're released. You're free to go. How come? Well, the sentence says we're justified freely by his grace. In other words, we are pardoned through absolutely nothing at all to do with us, but simply because God wants to. It's certainly not because we deserve it. The first bit of the sentence is shown that's not the case. It's not because the evidence hasn't been conclusive. It's not because we've got nice friends. It's not because it's our birthday. It's not because we try and keep the Ten Commandments. It's not because we've turned up at church. No, no, we're pardoned simply because God wants to. No other reason. How does that work? Doesn't that sound a bit dodgy? In fact, in Peru at the moment, they're currently investigating an ex-president Because while he was president, he pardoned, he justified, over 5,000 prisoners, many of whom were there on drug charges. He let go entire gangs of drug traffickers and cocaine producers, and this president is now being investigated in case he may have have a few mixed motives in his pardons, that he may have been unjust in setting them free. Paul, in this passage, is very keen for us to know that God has not been unjust in pardoning us the way he has. In fact, in our reading, in the sentences surrounding the underlying sentence that we're having a look at, God says that Paul says that God pardoning us in the way that he has, in fact, shows him to be righteous. The last sentence there in the reading, he says that God pardoning us demonstrates God's justice, not his injustice. And that's because even though we've been pardoned from our sin, it's not that our sin has just been swept under the carpet. Yes, we've been pardoned from it, but it's nevertheless been treated very, very seriously indeed. Which is what our underlined sentence goes on to tell us. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, if justified is a word that comes from law courts, redemption is a word that comes from the marketplace. And in particular, the slave market. Redemption meant to buy a slave's freedom. Slaves themselves couldn't do that. They they didn't have any money of their own. But other people could do it for them. They could buy the slave and then set them free. Maybe a family member would do that. They would pay the price. They would buy the slave and then set them free. That is redemption. Paying the price to give someone their freedom. Now, there's a member of the British House of Lords who does this sort of thing. Uh, Baroness Caroline Cox was the president and is now the patron of a human rights organisation that literally goes to slave markets in places like Africa and they buy slaves to set them free. In the space of three years, they have directly bought the freedom of over 2,000 slaves in the Sudan. I reckon that's delightful. That's redemption. That's what this passage is saying God does for us. Doesn't just ignore our sin, He buys us out of trouble and into freedom. Because remember, we're in trouble. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're in trouble because we all deserve to be punished by God, but we have been justified, we have been pardoned from that punishment and the way he's done it is not by ignoring our sin, but by redeeming us from it. He has paid the price to set us free. Which of course begs the question, what, what price did he pay? How much does it cost, how much did it cost, for God to redeem us? At the time of the American Civil War, when Abraham Lincoln was around, it's been estimated that in today's money, uh, the average cost of a slave in the American South was $40,000. Today, the average global cost of a slave is about ninety dollars That's appalling, isn't it? $90 for the life of a person. The cost for God to set us free was far more than that. It was his own son. That is why our underlined sentence mentions Jesus. Look at it again with me. All are justified, pardoned, freely by his grace, through the redemption, through the price being paid for our freedom that came... By Christ Jesus. See that name at the end? The redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, the price for our freedom from punishment, the price for our pardon from sin, the price that God put up was no less than Christ Jesus. That's extraordinary. Think back to Baroness Cox buying the freedom of slaves in the Sudan as fantastic as that is, and it is, can you imagine if she went there and freed slaves by swapping places with them, giving herself as the price to set the slaves free? That would be mind-boggling. A baroness trading places with a slave it's what Jesus did. He traded places with us and took our punishment as the price for buying us freedom. And he's even more important than a baroness. Our sentence highlights that because did you notice that it did not say Jesus Christ but Christ Jesus. That's because Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's his title. Christ means King. It means God's special king. It means God's anointed king over all the world. And King Jesus paid the price of his life so that we could be free. That's an extraordinary sacrifice. The sentence after our underlined one even calls it a sacrifice. It calls it a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That's a reference to Jesus' crucifixion when he shed his blood on the cross because when Jesus did that, he was substituting himself for his people. He was receiving the punishment we deserve for falling short of the glory of God. He received the punishment in our place, giving up his own life as the price to buy our freedom. Friends, are you starting to see that that idea about getting into heaven by doing good things is so not what the Bible says. We are not saved by us doing things. We are saved by what Jesus has done for us. We are saved by Jesus paying a phenomenal price himself. So as to redeem us. We are saved by receiving a pardon that Jesus achieved for us. It is all about what Jesus did. And so having laid to rest that misunderstanding of getting into heaven by by us doing things, I guess the key thought that we're left with now is, well, where does that leave us? How, How do we respond to that? If it's all about what Jesus does for us, what do we sort of do then? What do we do with that? What should our reaction be? Well, the key word in today's reading is faith. Look at verse 22, which is the second sentence of our reading. It says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In verse 25, the sentence immediately after our underlined sentence, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, which is a reference to the cross, to be received by faith. And then in the final sentence, in verse 26, it says that he, God, did all of this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So that we don't miss it, the Apostle Paul says three times in this short passage that the appropriate response to all this news about Jesus redeeming us and justifying us, the appropriate response is faith. Because being justified and being redeemed, those sort of strange words that I hope we now understand a little bit what they mean, being pardoned and being set free, all those things do not automatically happen for everyone. They are only given to those who receive them by faith. See, imagine over morning tea uh, today, I was to say to you out in the foyer, That if you close your eyes and hold out your hands, I will give you $100. Now my guess is that if I was to make that sort of promise, um, that would be a nice surprise over morning tea. But you're now left with a decision to make. Do you trust me or not? Let's face it, while your eyes are closed, I could do anything to you. I could make a funny face at you, I could run away and leave you in the middle of the foyer uh, looking a bit silly. And so I've offered you a gift, but you now have to choose whether or not to put your faith in me so as to receive it. Now you would of course trust me, I'm a minister. (laughs) And so in faith you close your eyes, you put out your hands and I drop a $100 note into it. Now, in the same way, faith is the way we accept God's gift of being pardoned. He has made us the stunning promise to set us free and pardon our guilt because of Jesus' sacrifice for it. And if you want it, it is just a matter of trusting God and putting out your hands. And that's what it means to receive it by faith. It's not that having faith is something that now merits you being pardoned. It's not that God sees your faith and therefore he decides to redeem you. No, no, faith is not why we receive God's pardon. It's how we accept it. It's the means by which we put out our hands and accept what Jesus has done. And that is an important step to take. Some years back in the US, a very unusual legal system, uh, case happened. A man named George Wilson was indicted for robbing a mail van and killing the driver of the van. George Wilson was condemned to death, but shortly before his execution, he was pardoned by the president. Amazingly, George Wilson refused to accept the pardon and said that he wanted to die instead. I have no idea why. The case went to the Supreme Court, who decided, quote, a pardon is not complete without acceptance. And George Wilson was executed. A pardon is not complete without acceptance. Have you accepted the pardon that God is offering us today in this sentence? If you haven't, I would like to give you the chance to do that this morning. Now maybe you're not up for this and maybe you'd like to think more about all this stuff about sin and God and Jesus. And I understand that. Don't put off making a decision about this for too long. It's, it's too an important issue to delay on. How many wise men there were, uh, that's not a biggie. How you get into heaven... He can have eternal life. That is something you really do need to get sorted out on. But if you still want to think more about it, we've got some material on a table up the back of this auditorium near the sound desk. Help yourself to any of that. Uh, There's copies of biographies of Jesus, uh, little booklets that explain, again, what Christianity is all about, the sort of things we've been talking about this morning. They're all free. Help yourself to any of those if you think they might be useful. But it might be that some of you here are ready to receive in faith God's offer to be, pl- to be pardoned. Maybe some of you here have come to that point in your life of realising that it is a misconception to think that you will ever be good enough to earn getting into heaven. Maybe you've come to that point in your life when you understand you just need help. God is offering it. And I'm going to close this morning by praying a prayer of acceptance. And if you want to accept God's pardon that we've heard about this morning, pray along with me. Uh, Don't pray out loud, but just in the quietness of your own mind, pray along with me as I talk to God and accept him for this pardon that he promises us in today's passage. I'm going to reread the sentence just to pull some thoughts together and then I'll pray. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all the same. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, pardoned, freely by his grace, because he wants to, through the redemption, through being set free that comes by Christ Jesus. I'll pray. Dear God, I want to admit this morning that I do fall short of your glory. I'm not perfect. I've sinned. I am guilty. But thank you for your offer to justify me. Not because I deserve it, but as a gift out of your generosity. Thank you that Jesus died on that cross so as to redeem me, to set me free. Dear God, I accept your offer. I accept your pardon in faith. I trust you. Thank you so much that I am now free from your punishment. And having now accepted your offer in trust, help me to live for you in trust as well. Amen. Friends, if you had prayed that prayer for the first time, honestly, uh, that's a really big decision. It's a fantastic decision. I would encourage you to talk to someone about the the decision to pray that for the first time honestly.